This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments they take in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Ammonites before them. Even though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we explore your word, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds, that we can have a better understanding of who you are and who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're starting a new fall teaching series on the book of Amos. Uh, Amos, what we're told in chapter 1, was a businessman. He was one of the uh, shepherds of Tekoa, and uh, he probably had other livestock, it's thought, as well. And so he was a man about his work, and then he had a vision from God about a coming disaster for his people. Now, just a little history here. After uh, King Solomon, who had ruled in the uh, 10th century BC, uh, the kingdom of Israel was actually divided into two parts, Israel and uh, Judah. And so you have Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And the town of Tekoa, which is where Amos is said to be from, was in the south, and yet most of his uh, writings, most of the oracle that he received was directed at the northern uh, kingdom. And so as you can imagine, this was uh, not very popular. This message was not very popular. And by the way, over the next several weeks, again, we'll be looking at Amos and more of his direct communication to Uh, the people of the north. But this is kind of like someone from, let's say, Alabama uh, critiquing or criticizing a Bostonian or New Yorker about their bad behavior. And so this wasn't going over well. This prophet from uh, Judah who is uh, prophesying about all the, the sins of the people from the north. And so this uh, vision came to him at a time when both Israel and Judah had experienced a lot of stability, political stability, and that meant that uh, both of them were uh, affluent and Israel in particular very, very politically uh, stable. And so the words of Amos start with a condemnation. So if you, we didn't read chapter one, but if you read in chapter one, there's this long list of sins, if you will, that the other nations had uh, also been taking part of and that Israel and Judah certainly could agree with. So the sins of the Syrians and Damascus and the Philistines and Gaza and the Phoenicians and Tyre 
and the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so chapter one, a, a, uh, someone from Judea or someone from Israel would heartily agree with all the, uh, of all the assertions about the injustices of these nations. And so it's when you get to chapter two that Amos starts to target his own uh, people. And he says about his own people, specifically in Judah in the south, that they have rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept God's decrees because they were led astray by false gods. And so while that was a challenging word, again, his words to the northern kingdom of Israel were even more so. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same woman, and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar, are in garments uh, taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fine. So let's spend a few moments here just trying to figure out what Amos is saying, what is so bad about each of these uh, elements that he's trying to communicate to Israel. First of all, he said that the, in Israel they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and die, deny justice to the oppressed. This is pretty self-explanatory that one of the great sins, one of the great problems of the people of Israel was that they were oppressing those who were less fortunate. They were oppressing the poor and they did not treat them with a justice. And they, they sold them for, for silver so that they could buy fine clothes. And they trampled on the heads of the poor. And we see, so we see great uh, injustice Amos is calling out to these people in Israel. He then goes on to say, Father and son use the same woman and so profane my holy name. And so this is talking about some of the sexual uh, promiscuity that was happening in the land that God had specifically spoken about that they were not to be doing. He goes on to say that they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. This is a weird one. It's a weird condemnation, one that we wouldn't get today without knowing a little bit about the, the details. So back in Amos' day, if you were less fortunate uh, if, or if you were poor and you needed to, buy, uh, to, to borrow money, in order to borrow money, you might go to someone who was more affluent and you would take a pledge, and that pledge would involve you giving your outer garment to the person, and so the person loaning your money would basically be responsible for your garment. They would hold your garment for the a day, and that's, that's how they kind of kept track of who was who and who owed who and so on. And so, you know, if you had a lot of money, you were loaning it out to people, you would have a collection of outer garments. But God had uh, provided for this, and so back, way back in Exodus chapter 22, when he established the uh, people of Israel as, as a, a nation and brought them out of Egypt, he'd set some provisions for this uh, when it happens. He says, if you take your neighbor's cloak, this is again way back in Exodus, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset. So if you, if you have money and you're going to loan it to someone, and you're going to take their cloak as a, a pledge, each night you need to give that cloak back to them because that cloak may be the only thing they have and what else are they going to sleep in? That's what God said in Exodus. When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So he had given instructions that if you are a person of means and you're going to give loans, fine, 
take the pledge, take the outer garment, but when it's sunset, you're supposed to give that garment back so they'll have something to keep them warm to sleep in. And so what we find in Amos' time is that the people who were affluent were not doing this. They were keeping the garments for them, themselves, and so they would lie down for their own sleep, and they would have a nice, cushy bunch of garments to sleep on. Sleep at the a temple. They'd lie down beside every altar on garments they have taken in a pledge. And so again, we see injustice, specifically injustice toward the less fortunate, toward the poor. And finally, the last condemnation in this part, it says that in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. And the implication here is that the wine they are drinking, the drink they are drinking was obtained by fines imposed on the, the oppressed. And so just generally you get this sense of injustice that uh, Israel, these people who had been established by God, who had themselves been slaves way back in the time of uh, Egypt, and that God had brought out and had established as a, a people who had been treated very unjustly for hundreds of years, were now doing the same to those who were without privilege among them. Uh, what's also most interesting is that the accusations against both Judah and Israel mirror in many ways the accusations against all of the other nations. And so Judah and Israel were acting in just exactly the same way of, uh, as the other uh, kingdoms, the other empires. There was no difference between Israel and Edom, Israel and Moab. And yet God had established this, these people when he brought them out of Egypt to be a light on the hill, to be a, a, a shining example of what God can do in a community of a people. In um, Exodus chapter 24, we also remember how readily these people had grasped on to God's commands to be just, to be fair, to do what is right, to act ethically. Uh, we're told in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 1 that the, and this is again way back at the beginning when God was establishing these people, and so we're talking about some 600 years before the time of Amos, that the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders, and you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. And so Moses goes and he approaches God, and God gives him instructions, and then uh, Moses goes back to the people, and when the people heard all the words of the Lord, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And then Moses takes the book of the covenant and he reads it to the people again and they responded again. We will do everything that the Lord has said we will obey. And so you have this group of people who had been presented with laws about how to deal with each other, specifically how to deal with the poor and the oppressed so that there is no injustice in, in the land. And now 600 years have, has gone by and this constitution, if you will, that they were called back to remember was com being completely neglected. Now they were the oppressors. They were the affluent ones, and they were taking advantage of those who were less fortunate, those who were uh, without. And so we see this, uh, this uh, pattern of degradation, of ignoring the, the commands, ignoring the agreement, ignore, ignoring the covenant for justice that, that had been established in their, the beginning of their history, and now they are acting with injustice and oppression. And so this disconnect between profession, what you say you're going to do, or what you say that you believe in, and practice is a part of Israel's history. But of course, of course, 
this isn't something that is relevant just for 8th century Israelites. This issue of profession and practice being at odds with each other is an issue that we here still address today. Throughout the ages, people who have professed to follow the God of the Bible usually, usually find that professing is a lot easier than practicing. Right? So you profess one thing, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be this, I agree to this, but in practice, that it, 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 it doesn't always work out. I mean, again, followers of Jesus today, people who profess to be Bible uh, Christians today are called to be, by Jesus himself, a light on the hill, much like the Israelites of the 8th century and the 10th century and the 14th century B.C. Christians today are called to be a light on the, uh, on the hill as well. And yet this disconnect between what we profess and what we practice is, if we're honest, still relevant for us today. And so it leaves us with the question, you know, what is it that affects our ability to profess and practice? By the way, uh, there's one, there are many great critiques of Christianity, but there is uh, one that's relevant to our story today and that is that Christians aren't really that different than anyone else. They're not more ethical. They're not more, uh, they're, they're not more kind or gracious to those who are in need. This came out in a famous story from Gandhi. You've probably heard this before, that Gandhi was you know, a learned man, and he explored uh, Christianity, read the teachings of Jesus. But once he said that, I'd be a Christian if it were not for Christians. Great quote, I'd be a Christian if it weren't for Christians. And that story is rooted in experience that he had when he was a lawyer in South Africa. He'd been reading the narrative of Jesus, and he was impressed by the words and the ethics of Jesus, and he thought to himself, you know what? I'm going to go learn more about this. And so he decided he was going to go to a church in South Africa. Now, if you know anything about the history of South Africa, as some of you know very intimately, you're from South Africa, that at the time of Gandhi, South Africa was a place that it was, it was, was full of inequality. And so Gandhi went to the church, and he showed up, and the deacons at the door literally told him, you cannot come in here. Uh, and, of course, that was related to the color of his skin and the caste that he was from. And so it was at that moment that Gandhi said, you know, I like Jesus, don't like the church so much. And it's certainly understandable. And so this critique of Christianity not being much different than anyone else, again, is not relevant just for Gandhi's time and is not certainly relevant just for the time of Amos. Uh, we still struggle with, the, 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 with being consistent from what we profess and what we actually uh, practice. So again, wh what affects uh, the ability to pro profess and practice in, in the same form and fashion? What, what, what hinders us from being able to practice what we profess? And so I would assert to you that there are at least three things that affect our ability to practice what we profess. And the first thing that's specifically relevant to the story of Amos today is a lack of compassion, specifically a lack of compassion for the poor. Uh, the Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, asked 1,600 Americans to answer this question. 
which is generally more often to blame if a person is poor, lack of effort on their part, or difficult circumstances beyond their control. They found that religion is a significant predictor of how Americans perceive poverty. Christians, especially, especially white evangelical Christians, are much more likely than non-Christians to view poverty as the result of individual failings. In the poll, 46% of Christians said that a lack of effort is usually to blame for a person's poverty compared with 29% of non-Christians. You getting this? So they ask, you know, people, what, 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 why are people uh, poor? Is it because they're not trying hard enough or there are bigger issues at, at play? 46% of the people said, hey, they're not trying hard enough. They're not working enough. Non-Christians seem to get it. Only 29% of them said that. The gulf widens further among specific Christian groups. 53% of white evangelical Protestants blamed lack of effort, while 41% blamed circumstances. This is a lack of compassion. It's the same lack of compassion that was alive and well in Amos's day. I mean, when you look at someone who doesn't have what you have and say, well, you should have, you know, boy, you should have done what I did. Not taking account circumstances in life and, 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 and color of skin and place you were born and all the elements, and you say, you're not working hard enough. That's a lack of compassion. And when you have that lack of compassion, you're going to take, a, you're going to take for granted and you're going to take a people, people for granted and you're going to take advantage of them. And that's what was happening. <laughs> oh, I got the cloak, give you the loan. I'm keeping the cloak, you know. You shouldn't be poor. Sorry about that. Lack of compassion affects our ability to actually practice what we uh, profess. And of course, this lack of uh, compassion isn't just an issue for the poor. There's a general lack of compassion among Christians today uh, regarding anyone who's an, an other, whatever that might uh, mean, whether this is related to gender or race or whatever. And it seems to be that affluence affects this. So in Amos's day, affluence was an issue. It was an affluent society, and so those who were not affluent were looked at as not trying hard enough, and this is the same issue that we have uh, today. Those who have look at those who have not and say, well, you know, what's wrong with you? Should have studied harder. Should have, should have, should have, you could have gone to a better school, not recognizing the innate privilege that they have. And so uh, this affluence also, of course, leads to a fear. You know, we've talked about fear before. By the way, we're going to do a series coming up in the second half of the of fall on fear. Can I just ask again, what is the deal with Christians being fearful? I mean, if there is one thing Jesus instructed Christians not to do, it was to be afraid. You know that? And yet fear seems to be driving so much of the political discourse in the world, in the, in the country, and it's often related to a lack of compassion, a lack of being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And yet we remember Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink or about your body, what you wear, is life not more than food and the body not more than clothes? Jesus' invitation to the person who's going to follow him is you don't have to live in fear anymore, and yet it seems like Christians are scared to death. And this uh, fear, of course, there are many other things related to lack of compassion, but this fear is one of them. 
And so, lack of compassion, what is it that hinders us from being able to practice what we profess? Lack of compassion is certainly at the top of the list, but reliance on innate specialness is another element. Now, again, in the time of Amos, the Israelites, they had an identity, and that identity was rooted in their specialness, that God had chosen them, had rescued them 600 years prior from Egyptian slavery, had brought them out, had established them, and, had, 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 and, and because of that, they had a sense of innate uh, specialness, that God specifically worked with them, which is true. But they were forgetting the words of Deuteronomy chapter 9. I love Deuteronomy chapter 9 because it's hilarious. Listen to this. After the Lord your God has driven you out, this is now uh, Moses writing the words of God. He's talking to the people that he's rescued now from slavery, and he's getting ready to establish them in a new home. After the Lord your God has driven out the people before for you, he's talking about the people of the land that he was going to establish them in, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on the count of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then, these three times, he's just like a broken record because he wants to get this across to the Israelites 600 years before the time of Amos, uh, this message. It's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are stiff-necked people. So, at the establishment of Israel, as a, as a, as a, a body, as a community, after coming out of Egypt, God wants to make it clear, it's not because you're awesome. 600 years go by, but this identity of being awesome is kind of hanging uh, there. So when you get to the time of Amos, this challenge of practice versus profession is kind of rooted in feeling like you're special. And when you start feeling like you're special, you start feeling like you can do whatever you want. Again, this is not just a problem for 8th century uh, Israel. Christians today have an identity, especially in, uh, in North America, in this country, that they are special, innately special, chosen by God. I would say that this is even a particular issue for Adventists. You know this is an Adventist community, and Adventists love to think of ourselves as being special, a chosen people. I was at a, a, a sermon, I won't tell you where, and the sermon started with, we are special people with a special purpose. It was talking to Adventists. We love feeling special, but the problem, when we feel innately special, that God has chosen us, you start you know, getting entitled, feeling like, well, clearly God, God thinks I'm awesome. And as soon as you start thinking of yourself as awesome, trouble is brewing. This is the reason why when God was establishing this, the people of Israel, 600 years before the time of the... Amos, he has to repeat three times, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your righteousness. And then the last one, it's not because of your righteousness, because actually, you're a stiff-necked people. You're kind of a pain in the neck. 
profession versus practice. Our practicing what we profess is challenging when we start relying on our innate specialness. Finally, when we forget about what God has done, practicing what we profess is incredibly challenging. God's appeal to the people in the time of Amos was, remember what I have done for you. I didn't, it's not because you're special that you're in the place that you are. I did something for you that you could not do for yourselves. In verse 9 of chapter 2, I destroyed the Amorites before them. He's talking about when he brought the Israelites into the land that they now possess. I destroyed the Amorites before them. They were tall as cedars and strong as the oaks, and you were scared to death of them. But I destroyed their fruit above and below the earth. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. So God is reminding his people that he is the one. They're, they're acting with, 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 uh, with prejudice. They're acting with entitlement. They're acting like they're special. They're oppressing the poor. They're oppressing the less fortunate. And God is saying, what are you doing? You've, you've forgotten. You were in that place not that long ago. Remember what I did for you. When we forget about what God has done in the past, it makes it incredibly challenging for us to practice what we once professed. And so the sins of ancient 8th century Israel aren't all that different from the sins of our own we too often uh, lack compassion, rely on our supposed innate specialness and forget what God has done for us. And our actions are inconsistent with our profession. We don't practice what we once have professed as a, as a people, as a, as a Christian body, as an Adventist body, and most acutely even as individuals. You profess one thing, but practice another thing. We're inconsistent. We're broken. We don't figure it out. And so what hope do we have? Well, fortunately, there is one who has always been consistent, whose profession and actions we're consistent across time. And so we have hope in one who is not ourselves. Uh, Jesus preached and professed blessing to the poor and the disenfranchised. In Luke chapter uh, 4, we read this really great story of Jesus who has become popular among uh, the people. People have started to hear, hear what he was about and what he had done and his ability to, to heal. And so people would come out to hear him. And so we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him had spread. And so he went to Nazareth, his hometown. And he was preaching in Nazareth. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And he read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and unrolling it, he found the place that said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
And so he reads this and he rolls up the, the scroll and he sits back down. And we're told that every eye was on his head. They were waiting to hear what he was to say. And he began by teaching and saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, what I just read in Isaiah that you've read a thousand times before, that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to bring good news to the poor. Today this is fulfilled because I'm bringing good news to the poor. So that was Jesus' profession, that he has come to bring good news to the downtrodden. But Jesus didn't just profess that, Jesus practiced that. We're told in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus was walking with his disciples and he saw a, a woman and a, a funeral uh, procession and a, and a woman who was distraught because her only son had died. And she did not have a husband. She was a widow. And if you were a, a woman in first century Israel and your son died and your husband died and you had no man, you were in trouble. In fact, you were destined to be a poor. And so she is distraught, not only, we can imagine, at the loss of her son, but the fact that her, her life as she knew it was, was now going to be drastically changed and that she was going to be one who did not have. And so Jesus has compassion on her, and this doesn't happen very often, but Jesus goes and he actually raises her son from the dead. He was in a coffin, and he came out of the coffin, in the coffin, out of the coffin, and it says she gave, he gave her her son back. This is Jesus bringing good news to the disenfranchised, to the poor, to the powerless. And of course, time and time again, you re read the stories. Jesus, not just professing, but also practicing. Uh, remember, I told you that if you had a, you need to borrow some money, you would give your coat over, and the, the person who was lending you money, they would uh, take your a coat. We're told in John chapter 19 and verse 23 that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. He was going to be without clothes. They took his, his cloak. And so Jesus, he's not the lender who takes the cloak away from those who need to, be, to, 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 need to borrow money. He gave his cloak over. See, by his, 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 he's taking our debt. He's giving his coat for us. The guards took his clothes and they divided them up into four shares, one for each of them, the undergarment remaining. See, Jesus has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. Jesus takes our uh, debt. When we, are, when we are in need of resources that we do not have, uh, Jesus provides them. He turns his cloak over for us. So because Jesus was consistent in his profession and practice, he is able to empower us to be consistent as well. See, on our own, we're never going to fix this profession versus practice dichotomy. You're never going to get it together. It's been a historic problem through the ages. I mean, 8th century Israel, 14th century Israel, contemporary Christianity, I mean, throughout the ages, this idea of professing one thing, oh, yes, yes, we're going to do this, we believe in this, we acknowledge this, we hear you, God, we're going to do it, and the practice, it never works together. Whether you're talking about a people group or you're talking about individuals, but the good news is because God has been consistent, 
as we embrace what he's done, there's hope that he can work in us to bring consistency, to bring our profession and our practice into one accord with him. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in my, me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You, your profession and your practice will work together. It will be consistent. Apart from me, you can't do it. You can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. But if you remain in me and I in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Jesus' invitation is as we embrace him every day. As we recognize him as the vine and we grasp onto that vine, we recognize what God has done on our behalf. We embrace what he's done. God is able to bear the fruit of consistency so that our profession and our practice are in one accord. So that we are just and not oppressive to those who uh, are, are others. That we are able to act with fairness. That we are considerate of everyone. And that we are gracious and loving and compassionate in a broken world. And what does this world need more than that? People who are consistent, who profess and practice. And that practice leads to compassion and graciousness and justice. And so, because Jesus has done this, Jesus now has the power to offer us that same ability. As we embrace his work, he can do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, and God can make us into the gracious and compassionate and loving and just people he's calling us to be. Through the power of the resurrected Jesus, may we be a community that practices justice and mercy and is aligned with the profession of our faith. And God Almighty, amen.